So let's go to Matthew chapter 10 this morning. I was thinking about, uh, you know, I get to be here and preach to young people, young people preparing and planning for the ministry. And I put it in this kind of context. If I had one chance to tell you one thing, what would I say? I've come to you this morning in, in that kind of mindset. If I could give you one piece of advice, what would it be? And it would simply be the three words. It's not the title. I'll give you the title in a minute. But the three simple words. If there's one thing you would ever get right in Christian life and ministry, it's die to self. Uh, that's it. That, you, you can't do anything if you don't do that. And I think uh, I'm very thankful for the quality and caliber students that we have here. But we have to be careful because I think there's a deception. And that deception I want to note in my title My title is, Surrender is Not Enough. Surrender is Not Enough. I'm going to assume that everyone here this morning, and it may not be, I'm going to assume that you've surrendered. You surrendered at some point and you said, you know what, I'm going to go to Bible college for a year. Or you surrendered and you said, I'm going to get my degree from West Coast Baptist College. Or some of you here, I talked to yesterday, you've already surrendered to the mission field. You're going to Uganda, all right? Uh, Some of you have already surrendered in some form or fashion, but I think there's a deception that if we're not careful, we'll fall into a trap if we don't understand that surrender is not enough. And in order to address that, I want to go to Matthew chapter 10. And there's four times in the Gospels. We're not going to study all four. There's four times in the Gospels when our Lord Jesus Christ mentions the death of the believer. These are not repeated times. There's more than that when the Gospels harmonize and repeat certain teachings. There's at least 8 to 12 of those times, depending how you look at it. But there's four times when Jesus Christ mentions the death of the believer. He either uses the phrase, take up your cross, right, and follow me, or deny yourself and follow me. Or he uses the phrase, he that loses his life shall find it. He that findeth his life shall save it or keep it, depending on the passage. So I want to look at one of those this morning, actually two of those this morning. And first of all, Matthew chapter 10 And to give you the context of Matthew chapter 10, you see in verse 1 that he's called the 12 disciples and he sent them out. He's given them power. The 12 disciples, all 12, even Judas Iscariot, could cast out demons, could heal. These these men preached and taught the word of God. They have some trouble in verses 16 through 25. They come into some persecution. Jesus Christ tells them in verse 26, don't have any fear. Fear them not. Don't fear the persecution. And then we get something kind of shocking that comes in verse 34. He says, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And then here we go in verses 37 through 39, really the core here. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege it is to serve you in any capacity that you desire and you determine. And Father, I pray that if it be your will, every person in this room today would surrender to full-time ministry, would give their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ, and have that in their heart that says, I must constantly be winning souls who are sinning. And Lord, we just pray that you would guide in this service this morning. Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. 
pray that you would guide me by the truth of your word and by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take a minute, number one, to look at the death of our affections. The death of our affections. If we're going to die to self, we need to do number one, we have to put our affections to death. I want to parallel Galatians 5.24, which says that they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So I think in this passage, what we're dealing with is crucifying and putting to death our affections. Letter A, I see the language, first of all, the language of the cross. The language of the cross here. I think it's important to understand what Jesus is talking about when he mentions taking our cross in verse 38. Now, number one under that is the description of the cross language. I want you to understand that in describing this cross language, it is not some burden that God wants you to carry along. Cancer is not your cross, all right? Uh, A difficult trial is not your cross. A financial burden is not your cross. Your roommates are not your cross. They might be a burden, but that's not a cross, all right? The cross is simply this. It's a death sentence. When Jesus carried his cross, he went to the death. You didn't carry a cross in any other scenario unless you were going to die. Men weren't walking around Rome carrying crosses. If they were, they were on a direct route to their death sentence. The disciple must follow Christ even to the place of taking his own Christ, uh, his own life. The cross has one purpose, that's to die. Living the Christian life is a paradox. You have to die to live. It doesn't make sense to the world. It doesn't make sense to our flesh. Our flesh says that's got to be wrong. That can't be right. Dr. Getch doesn't know what he's talking about. I was in the men's chapel yesterday and he mentioned this. The flesh wants to say, Dr. Gesh doesn't know what he's talking about. You can live. It's okay. Jesus says, no, you can't. You can't be my disciple. The only way to live is to die. I like what John Corson says. He says, take up the cross. He goes, today it would be take up the electric chair. Take up the electric chair. We wear cross earrings and cross necklaces. But what if we started wearing miniature gas chamber earrings and electric chair necklaces? They might more fully capture the essence of what Jesus was saying. He attributes, he refers to the hymn, There's Room at the Cross for You. And I know that that's a salvation hymn. But in putting it in in this context, he says, What if we sang, There's Room at the Electric Chair for You? It puts it in a different context, doesn't it? Jesus Christ is saying, If you want to be my disciple, you need to sit in your electric chair and throw the switch. You can't do anything until you've done that. You need to die. Number two, the importance of cross language. As we look at this under letter A, let me just say that every Christian has his cross. I'll come to this a little bit later. Every Christian has their cross, and every Christian is revealed in how they deal with that cross. Every Christian has a cross, and they are revealed by how they deal with that cross. J.E. Vaux says the cross is easier to him who takes it up than to him who drags it along. I think there's a lot of people that are dragging their crosses along. They're reluctantly following the Lord. He says, take it up. All right, letter B. After we've looked at letter A, the language of the cross, I want you to note letter B, the problem of our natural affection. Jesus mentions it in verse 37. And verse 37 is extremely stark. 
It's extremely stark because we sit here and we say, did he mean what he said? In verse 37, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This love is this love that comes naturally. Let me t- naturally, let me tell you, the world loves their children. They love their children. I run into unsaved people all the time. They have a natural love for their children. We have a God-given conscience. Even the unsaved, Romans 2 teaches that, that the Gentiles by nature do the law. And so we have a world and we have a conscience that we have that gives a natural common love for the family. But Jesus says that can get in the way of serving me. That love for family cannot be more than your love for me. Luke 14, 26 and 27 is a parallel to this. And he mentions uh, a wife, having a wife and then our own selves. You see, we have a lot of affection for family. I like what Charles Spurgeon, what happened in his life. Now, before he got married, he was engaged to his wife, Susanna, and he had picked her up uh, to go to a place where he was going to preach. Now, he was already a well-known preacher at the age of 20, and thousands of people were at this location to hear him preach. And so he sort of pushed his way up to the platform and got up there and preached and uh, or was kind of pushed by the crowd, made his way, and he was separated from his fiance at the time. After he preached, he came down, she was gone, had evidently already headed home. So he went by her house to catch up with her, and she was crying. This is his fiancée, whom he would marry. She said, Charles, you left me in that crowd all alone, and you weren't even concerned where I was. Spurgeon said, I'm sorry, but perhaps what happened was providential. I didn't intend to be impolite, but whenever I see a crowd like that waiting for me to preach, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility. I forget about you. Now, let's get one thing straight. It will have to be the rule of our marriage that the command of my master comes first. You shall have second place. Are you willing as my wife to take second place while I give the first place to Christ? Now, I'm not going to take... Spurgeon to task on maybe the bluntness of this. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and go for the spirit of it. Guys, probably not what you want to say on a first date. That may not work out. But here's how I would like to say it with Spurgeon. Here's one thing that Spurgeon made very clear. Not even my wife will be my God. My God is my God. Not even you, Susanna. Not even my wife will be my God. Now, let me tell you, that man loved his wife, right? He was faithful to her all through his ministry. But he made it very clear that his wife was not going to get in the way. Let me tell you that this is why I want to say we are putting to death our affection. Our affection. We're not getting rid of our family. We're not dishonoring our parents. We're not unloving to our spouse. But any affection that would pull us away from Jesus Christ has to be cut off. I look at it as like strings that pull on our heart. And all these things that attach to our heart and pull us. I was thinking of a man just a couple of weeks ago as I've been praying about this message for a while. I asked one of the men in our Spanish ministry, hey, where's so-and-so? He was kind of new and he had come for a week and he's not here today. Where is he? He goes, well, I called him this morning and uh, he said he couldn't make it because his kids were still in bed. And he didn't want to wake them up. Does that man love his kids? Well, yeah. I mean, he's got a natural love for his kids, but he's not ready to follow Jesus. He's not ready to follow Jesus because he let his love for children, that natural affection for children, get in the way. And let me tell you that either Christ is to be loved supremely 
or he isn't loved at all. You can't say, I love Christ and all these other things that I have affection for. Either he's everything or nothing. Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and in all. I don't like this priority system we set up sometimes. Dr. Shetler mentioned it last night. Like here we have uh, God and uh, then we've got family and then we've got ministry. There aren't priorities. There's priority. That priority is Jesus Christ. If you get Jesus Christ right, you'll get family right. If you get Jesus Christ right, you'll get ministry right. Jesus Christ is all. That's the only place he'll take in your life. He's not even going to take first place. Don't sit here and say, I'll give you first place. No, he takes all the places. He's first, he's second, he's third, he's last. He's every single place in your life is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, you can't put me in those places if you have affection for others over here that comes from that natural side. You've got to get the proper love and structure from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I want to illustrate this letter C with the life of Abraham. Abraham, what a great man. Abraham was called by God to leave the Ur of the Chaldees. You know what Abraham leaving the Ur of the Chaldees is? That's surrender. Right? He left his home. He left his culture. And went wherever God told him. Some of you, if I asked you today, hey, where's God sending you? You're going to say, I have no clue. And that's okay. You're like Abraham. You're surrendered. You're on the way somewhere. But I want to remind you that surrender is not enough. And here is why surrender is not enough. Because the surrendered man can still be alive. Let me show you how this works. Let me give you a... a so-so illustration. Don't take me to task on all the points of the application of the illustration. But let's say you were on a battlefield, maybe in the Civil War or the Revolutionary War. The enemy had overwhelmed you. Everybody was on the run. And you pull out your white flag and you wave it. You surrender. And the idea in that surrender is, hey, if the enemy takes me captive, I'd rather be captive and have bread and water and maybe one day released than to be killed on the battlefield. The problem with a surrendered man spiritually is he's still alive. And so the surrendered man says things like this. Lord, I surrendered and my school bill's due tomorrow and I don't have enough money. Lord, I've surrendered to your will and things are really hard. Lord, I've surrendered to your will and... I'm not getting the bills paid that I thought that should be paid. I'm not eating what I thought I should be able to eat. The surrendered man is still alive. And I want you to understand, it wasn't even good enough for Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees. There had to be another step. God gave Abraham a ton of promises. In Genesis chapter 12, he tells him to leave. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So here's a righteous man walking with the Lord, right? Abraham, a righteous man walking with the Lord. He makes some mistakes along the way, but eventually God gives him the fulfillment of the promise. In Genesis chapter 21, he gives him Isaac. And he gets the promise. Here it is. Abraham has surrendered. And here is Isaac. And he's born. And all the promises are right there. And God says then in Genesis chapter 22. 
a very disturbing chapter. He says, Abraham, take now thy son, thine only son whom thou lovest. He says, I want you to take him to Moriah, go up into the mountains and offer him as a burnt offering. What? God says, I'm glad you've surrendered. Now I want you to put to death what you love. He says, thine only son whom thou lovest. It's great that you surrendered. I'm glad you're on the way. You're going the right direction. But I need you, Abraham, who loves even the greatest promise that God could give him. I need you to put to death what you love. Did he literally put Isaac to death? No, but he sure put to death whatever string was attached from his heart to his son. Oh, he loves his son. That wasn't going to change, but that wasn't going to get in the way of serving God. And let me tell you, I think there's a lot of Christians and I think there's a lot of people in ministry. They left Ur of the Chaldees, but they're stuck at the bottom of Mount Moriah. And there's probably some of you here today, you did great, you surrendered, but you're arguing with God all the time. Why isn't this here? Why isn't that there? Why do my roommates treat me this way? And all you need to do is you need to march up to the top of Mount Moriah, build a little altar there, put everything that's attached to your heart, lay it on there, take your knife and cut all those strings off. Your problem is you. It's not your mom and dad. It's not Pastor Chapel. It's not the college staff. It's not your roommates. Your problem is that you love stuff and you love people. And God says, if you don't love me supremely, you don't love me at all. And if Abraham didn't get a ticket with his son Isaac, you're not going to get one either. You've got to cut all those attachments. C.T. Studd, a great missionary, said to his three daughters on his deathbed, I wish I had something to give you, but I gave it all to Jesus a long time ago. You know, we look at C.T. Studd and Spurgeon and say, boy, these were mean men. I wonder why they were so powerful in the ministry then with statements like this. And so we have to have the death of our affection. Anything tied to your heart has to be cut off. I want to go to our second one. In Matthew 16, and that's the death of self-preservation. The death of self-preservation. This is uh, parallel to Mark 8, 34 and Luke 9, 22 to 25. But this is the second time that Jesus mentions it. Now, earlier in the chapter, in Matthew 16, we're talking about Peter. Peter has probably one of the greatest statements of faith in Jesus Christ that there is in the Bible. In verse 16, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, you don't get a more solid statement than that, right? Then Jesus, in verse 21, from that time forth, he began to show to his disciples how he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, Matthew 16, 22, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. What? We go in seven verses from thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, to Jesus saying, get thee hence, Satan. Get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. 
I think we ought to pay attention to this. Because I think we run into this problem the same way that Peter did. I want to note letter A, the deception in Peter's statement. The deception in Peter's statement, which we'll bring up a little bit more in letter B. But Peter, first of all, is a believer. Peter's a believer, right? Absolutely. Does Peter love the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, he loves Jesus. And he says something in verse 22, a statement that doesn't sound so bad. It says, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Let me say what, let me, let me put be it far from thee maybe in a more modern setting. He says, Lord, have mercy on yourself. Lord, relax just a little bit. You're talking about this death. You're talking about this torment. You're talking about people coming against you. Lord, Lord, just relax a little bit. Have some mercy on yourself. You know, you know, Lord, this ministry is tough enough. We have enough persecution. People already don't like us sometimes. You know, we're kind of on the road all the time, living off the land and people's generosity. Lord, I couldn't even pay taxes until you brought that fish up. You know, it's bad enough as it is. Lord, let's have a little bit of mercy here. Letter B, we see the declaration by Jesus Christ. Because Peter's really being deceptive in this statement. Jesus Christ is going to reveal that deception. Letter B... Jesus says in verse 23, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Jesus said, Your statement to me tells me all I need to know about you. You see, Peter wanted to slow down himself. When it came to the cross, Peter faltered. Peter was okay in ministry. Peter was okay in healing and feeding 5,000. Oh, that was great. That was a good time. Man, if we could have packed buses and everybody getting saved every week and thousands of baptisms every month. Oh, we're all good with that. But when the Lord Jesus sets up a cross, we're like Peter. We say, whoa, hold on, hold on. That's a little too much, Lord. Let's relax. We don't want to be one of those crazy Bible college students. Peter drew back from the cross. Let me tell you that the ministry is not a way for you to make a living. I think we have far too many people entering ministry and all their concerns are, how am I going to raise support? How are we going to finance it? How are we going to fund it? How am I going to get here? How am I going to get there? The ministry is not a way for you to make a living. It is an opportunity for you to manifest your death. The ministry is an opportunity for you to manifest your death to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus said, Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Oh, you're in the ministry, Peter, but you're still concerned about how you're going to live, and you're not concerned about how you're going to die. This is a big deal. James Calvert, you've heard this story, committed his life to reach the peoples of Fiji Islands. The ship's captain, when they got here, said, Hey, this is your last chance. You should turn back. You're going to lose your life and the lives of those you brought with you. James Calvert says, That's all right. We died before we got here. See, Peter, totally in ministry, chief of the apostles, but was in ministry to make a living, to live. And Jesus said, As soon as that cross comes, Peter's drawing back. We see number two, Jesus rejects Peter completely. Jesus uses the words Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're now, what Jesus says, you are now my adversary. You are now 
against me, let me tell you that your flesh is extremely deceptive. If it can trick Peter, it can trick us. See, Peter thought it was okay to do stuff for the Lord and still have concern about himself. Let me tell you a scary statement. There is not one thing in the ministry that you cannot do in the flesh. I could get up here and preach in the flesh. You can teach in the flesh. You can run a bus route in the flesh. You can go soul winning in the flesh. You can read your Bible in the flesh. You can pray in the flesh. You can go to Bible college and graduate all in the flesh. And here's the scary thought that's beyond that. Jesus says, you do all of that in the flesh, you're still my adversary. Jesus says, I won't have anything to do with you if you do it in the flesh. I don't care if it's Jesus stuff and Bible college stuff and ministry stuff. He says, Peter... You're in the flesh. You savor the things of men. You don't concern yourself with the things of God. And he says here, you have to die. You have to die. Verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Peter said, Jesus, pity yourself. Jesus said, Peter, deny yourself. Peter says, Jesus, slow it down. Take a break. Let's, uh, let's consider what's happening here. We've got, we got to savor some of the things of men. And Jesus says, no, you need to die. Now, let me tell you something about the cross. At the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ paid the price for sin. But you have to put self to death with your cross. Let me tell you something that's not very fun. Nobody else is going to carry your cross. Dr. Getch has his own cross. I've got my own cross. Brother Weaver has his own cross. And Mrs. Weaver, she has her own cross. Nobody's going to carry your cross. Listen to me. You have to be like Abraham. And at the bottom of Mount Moriah, it says that he left his two servants. All right? He brought two servants to help him haul things for three days. At the bottom of Mount Moriah, he left the servants. And let me tell you, he went all alone with all of his affection to that altar by himself. And let me tell you, young man, you need to go by yourself. Young lady, it's a trip that you make all alone. And you pick up that cross and you deny yourself and you say, Jesus, it's me and you forever. You have to do it. No Bible college is going to do it for you. No pastor is going to do it for you. Your mom and dad cannot do it for you. You have to get up and get up on that mountain yourself and die. Looking at Peter here, we're reminded that the flesh will serve God all day long as long as the flesh is getting fed. Hey, let me tell you something. Don't be deceived. The flesh will eat Jesus' food and take Jesus' money all day long. You see, here's Peter's problem. Was Peter surrendered? Yes. Didn't he leave his nets? Right? He left the nets. Jesus said, follow me. Peter's like, yep, I'm up. Peter surrendered, but he wasn't dead. Surrender is not enough, guys. Surrender is not going to keep you in the ministry. Surrender is not going to keep you there because as a surrendered person, you're still alive. Surrendered is the first step. 
Surrendered is a great step. You have to have surrender. But you can't be like Peter because here's what happened. Peter follows along the ministry of Jesus Christ. He gets to the trial of Jesus Christ. He knows what's going to happen. He sees the cross down the road and he denies him three times. Surrendered man, not dead, denies Christ three times. You know why people get out of the ministry? Do you know why people fail in the ministry? They didn't die. Oh, they've got a great story of surrender. And it's a good story. It's a valid story. It's wonderful. They'll have these stories of Ur of the Chaldees. But where are the Mount Moriah stories? Where are the times when I had to die to self? You know, we talk about having a servant's heart. You need to have a servant's heart. But let me tell you, it's real easy to get a servant's heart when you're dead. It's not that hard. We must die to self-preservation. Peter at some point had a limit. He said, I don't want to go that far. <laughs> Lord, that, that, that's too far. I, I can't go that far. It's too much. A.W. Tozer said, in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. We want to be saved. I love what he says here. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us. No dethronement for us. No dying for us. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar, but we doom ourselves to the shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. And I think he's dead right. We want Christ to do all the dying, but every time he mentions his cross, he mentions our cross. And I think we can turn into many times uh, ungrateful, selfish Christians full of these grand expectations of all the things that God's going to do for me. And everybody wants to say, oh, I'll live for Jesus, but who's going to say I'll die for him? Living for Jesus is easy. That's easy. It's the dying that's hard. It's that Mount Moriah When mom and dad aren't real sure about you being here at Bible college. When grandma's in the hospital now. And the school bill's due tomorrow and the money's a little tight. All of a sudden these strings start pulling on your heart. And your problem isn't the money. Your problem isn't mom and dad. It's not your church back home. You didn't put yourself to death. You're still worried about preserving yourself. You still have affections for things. We don't disown our parents. We don't disown our family. We still take care of them. But we have to cut that affection. I want to finish with what I think is my favorite story in this area. A man by the name of John Penry, he was a gospel preacher back in England in the 1500s. And of course, a gospel preacher in England in the 1500s wasn't going to be liked by the Church of England. He was eventually sentenced to death for sedition by Queen Elizabeth and sentenced to be hung on May 29th of 1593. And these were his last words. He goes back. I'm going to tell you a story within a story, so hang with me. Because John Penry is telling this story to the people that are around him while the gallows are above him. 
And he takes these people back to 400 B.C. And he says, the city of Thasus was besieged by the Athenian army. It was under a great onslaught, but the leadership of the city of Thasus said, if anyone motions for peace, we'll take his life. The city said, we're not going to give up. There was a man, a citizen of the city of Thasus. His name was Hegetorides. And he looked upon his city after several weeks, and he saw there was a decay and ruin. People were starving. The water was bad. People were dying. Hegetorides goes before the men... And he says this before the the men as he walks into the plaza with a rope around his neck, a hangman's noose. Hegetorides goes before the men and he says, My masters, deal with me as you will, but in any case, make peace with the Athenians that my country may be saved by my death. John Penry is telling this story as he's about to be hung for preaching the gospel. John Penry says this, My case is like Hegetorides. I know not my danger in these things. I see you, my dear native country, perish. It pitieth me. I come with a rope about my neck to save you. Howsoever it goeth with me, I labor that you may have the gospel preached among you. Though it costs my life, I think it well bestowed. And after those words, he was hung to death at the age of 34 for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these words haunt me all the time. I come with a rope about my neck. To save you. Let me say it this way. Young man, when you step on that mission field, don't you step on that mission field without a rope around your neck. Don't you dare go to those people without a rope around your neck. Young man, don't you get in a pulpit without a rope around your neck. Young people, don't run that bus route without a rope around your neck. Don't go soul winning without a rope around your neck. I come with a rope around my neck to save you. I know sometimes we honor students with cords and tassels at graduation. And I would want to give you this picture when you walk this platform and you graduate. Underneath that robe and underneath that shirt, invisible to all except you and the Lord Jesus Christ, there ought to be a rope around your neck as you go into the ministry. If there's one thing I could tell you, if there's one thing I could tell you, you have to die. You have to get up to Mount Moriah. You've got to put those affections to rest. You have to say, there is no point in my life, in my service to Christ, where I will concern myself with self and have an affection for the things of this life. As I go out into ministry every day, as I go out into my life every day, I've got this rope about my neck, and it doesn't matter what happens to me because I'm dead already. And so maybe in this invitation, maybe I could picture it this way. I'd imagine, let's say, I put ropes down here. I just got a bunch of hangman's nooses. I don't have six points on how to plant a church. There's probably some good ones. I don't have that today. I don't have six points on how to conform to the culture on a foreign field. Those are important, but that's not what I have for you today. I've got one thing. I've got a rope. That's what I brought I brought a rope, but I'm not going to give it to you, and I'm not going to put it on you. You have to take it. You have to pick it up, and you have to put it on. And you got to stop blaming people that are around you. you got to stop with the expectations of everybody else. you got to stop with being just surrendered and not dead, because the surrendered man is still alive. 
And so I invite you this morning, would you get a rope, would you put it on your neck, and then go serve.